0: I'm Melina I'm Spam, and this is What I Wore When I Interviewed at New York Magazine.
1: Welcome to What I Wore When, a production of Glamour and iHeartRadio. I'm your host, Perry Samerton. Each week, I'm sitting down with a woman I find fascinating to talk about what she wore during a pivotal moment in her life. We're using the power of style to tell the stories you haven't heard. For the most part, all the women on this podcast were handpicked by me on behalf of Glamour, women we find fascinating or nostalgic or brilliant, or just women we want to get to know a little bit better. Emily Nussbaum was at the top of the list. Emily is the television critic for The New Yorker, where she's worked since 2011, and in 2016, she won the Pulitzer Prize for Criticism. Her voice is authentic and accessible, and she's been described as a singular writer. In 2019, she released her first book, I Like to Watch, Arguing My Way Through the TV Revolution. The book examines the changing landscape of television while effectively defending it as a medium worth taking seriously. It includes essays on everything from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, a show that's been pivotal in Emily's life, as well as The Sopranos, Vanderpump Rules, Scandal, True Detective, and Sex and the City. Emily also tackles the question of whether a viewer can separate art from the actions of problematic creators in a timely Me Too essay. When I asked if she'd be willing to be a guest on the podcast, she seemed genuinely surprised, saying she doesn't really consider herself a stylish person. I explained that the goal isn't to only feature, quote, fashionistas. That would be so boring. I'm so glad she agreed because our conversation was good. So good, in fact, that we ran out of time and had to wrap it up just as we were digging into one of my favorite topics, Carrie Bradshaw. Not to worry, though, she still had plenty to say. I also asked Emily to give her professional opinion on whether my mother and father were absolutely terrible parents for letting me watch Twin Peaks at nine years old, which she happily did. Here's our conversation. So I want to start by asking you, which is what I ask everybody that comes on this podcast, which is what are you wearing right now?
0: Oh, I hadn't thought about this. Uh, I'm wearing black pants um, that fit well, which is the difficult thing for me with pants. Um, And uh, I'm wearing some sort of a gray tank top and a black sweater and a, a necklace that I really like that I bought at a museum shop that is where I generally buy jewelry. Um, And I don't remember where I got these earrings, but they're kind of distinctive, simple silver earrings. Yeah, I'm admiring
1: your earrings a lot. Yeah, I like the
0: earrings. They're very striking. So I'm wearing good jewelry, but I'm wearing a completely neutral what you wear to a New York office kind of thing, which is a black sweater and black pants. Oh, I am wearing kind of nice sneakers. I'm wearing these, these sort of weird green corduroy sneakers. Love them. Yeah.
1: And because the name of the podcast is "What I Wore When," you were going to talk about what you wore when you interviewed for your job at New York Magazine.
0: So I think this was around um, 2003 or 2004, and at the time I was working as a freelance writer, and I was writing for places like the New York Times Magazine and doing both short pieces and long pieces. But I mainly thought of myself as a writer, and. Um, Adam Moss, who had worked at the Times, was the new head of New York Magazine, and he was hiring new staffers. And he called me to see whether I could come in. And I thought they were going to call me to be a writer there, which frankly entails a different kind of clothing, because writers are often schlubs. Um, But he actually wanted me to come in to interview to be the editor of the culture section. And it wasn't something that I was sure I wanted to do. I was very ambivalent about it. So I sort of winged it when I went in for my interview in a way that I don't normally for things. And I'm convinced I got the job because of the clothes I wore, which is true of almost nothing else in my life. But I somehow put together an outfit that was stylish, but showed my genuine uncaring about whether I got the job, which is often the right combination for a situation like this. And it was more stylish than I actually am. So what I wore is dark blue jeans that fit right, and for the period were sort of the right style of jean because at the time they were kind of they had that sort of low waist Low-waste. thing going yep, on. Two thousand three. But for but for whatever reason, I was actually pulling it off because I don't really have a body that works that great in that kind of jeans. But I had good ones. But the main thing is I wore I had um, a a blue crushed velvet sort of waistcoat jacket that I had bought vintage that had silver buttons. And my mom had given me these actually quite nice um, low ankle boots that were um, kind of a brownish yellow alligator skin or something that had stacked heels, wooden stacked heels. Those two items actually looked good. Like they were distinctive, strange, somewhat bohemian downtown things. And wearing pants always gives me a stronger sense of authority in a situation like this. And I think I normally would have gone to a job interview, honestly, wearing an A-line skirt, a simple top and a jacket to try to look professional. But I think partially because I genuinely kind of didn't want to get the job or at least was doing it... I know that sounds almost disrespectful because it was such a good job, but I was ambivalent about ambivalent. going... I was ambivalent about becoming an editor instead of a writer. So there was this part of me that was just like, whatever. Like, I didn't really I'll prep that in much. I'll go meet you. Right. So I, so I sort of magically managed to hit on this outfit that kind of looked... made me look way more downtown, selective, idiosyncratic, and actively stylish in a kind of young woman way. Um, and I went in, and I have to say, and uh, like... It, The other thing is, Adam, my old boss, and um, Hugo Lindgren, who was also interviewing me— they are guys who actually care about fashion in different ways. Certainly, And I walked in and I actually saw that they liked my clothes. Like, I've, this sounds stupid, but like there was this dumb way in which I was like, I've hacked this because so many things are stupid first impressions. And there was this way in which because I looked kind of freewheeling and like I matched the part or something, I think that helped. Anyway, I did get the job. And I initially said that I would take it for three months because we were just putting together... Um, the prospectus of the magazine. And then I ended up staying there for many years. And Adam is an incredible boss. It all worked out. I never dressed like that again. I was going to (laughs) say, have you worn that waistcoat? (laughs) So if he was hiring me in any way, as I, you know, perhaps delusionally suspected that I was just sort of acting a role that worked for the job interview. uh, After that, I did not wear good clothes to the office. Um, I did try to dress up a little bit. I went on a shopping trip with my, uh, I think he was, we were then dating, it was before I married my husband, who's very stylish and has great taste. And we were living in the West Village and we went for this walk down, I think Greenwich Avenue had a couple of different shops. And so I went out and I sort of went on a shopping trip to try to buy a few items that seems like an editor at New York Magazine would wear these items. What did you buy? I I don't know what any of the things were because I don't know brands. But I bought some things that were kind of medium pricey and seemed like statement things, but I was never able to use them or put them together. But I do remember the first day I went in the office, I mean, my entire impression of an office like that was like 13 going on 30. 100%. So I was trying to, I was sort of trying to, raise my game to rom-com level mm-hmm. <laughs> which which was my notion of media right i mean it's a woman, new york right? media office yeah it's exactly a media woman, of course. but the the truth is i mean people dress in black in new york and a lot of people who are in fashion dress very neutral and the one time i ever wrote about fashion i was really struck by the fact that i was like wait this is not made up of butterflies like this is a lot of 30 to 50 year old women wearing black and like simple expensive chunky statement earrings or something it's not a situation in which people are trying to stand out visually so or wearing off the runway necessarily pieces yeah. gowns and no i think that's what people think of fashion but i'm trying to remember what else i bought i mean i and then at one point when i early in having that job i also attempted to have a power lunch as a sort of a joke with a friend at michael's in midtown cuz it I seemed mean. like a fun thing to do <laughs> um and on the way to that i bought some um i bought some clip on earrings that had on the way to the lunch yeah on the way to the lunch i literally was like i'm going to like but again it was sort of as a joke because my friend and i were like we're now like media people what we're, are power lunch earrings they they, they were like strange chunky rhinestone earrings with red and blue stones in them that were round clip-ons rather than dangly. Or they were sort of, you know, punch-in-the-face Upper East Side-ish faux jewelry of some kind. So I remember I stopped at the store. So th- those were my power clothes is basically what I'm saying for New York Magazine.
1: Are you somebody now that considers yourself a shopper?
0: No, I actually don't like to shop. Um, my husband likes to shop, though. So I often will go shopping with him and he will pick out things that are good. And he's responsible, actually, for some of the best things that I own. Because, I mean, we'll go to a vintage store, and he'll pick out something that I personally wouldn't have picked out because I'm just a highly pragmatic shopper. I just, I find it boring. I don't like going through the racks. I don't like spending money and I also don't like searching for bargains. So I'm like the worst combination of... It's a no win for you. And I I don't really enjoy changing and changing rooms and trying various things on and all that kind of thing. But I do like having some nice clothes. So I go either with him or or with my son. It's actually fun. I used to shop with my son when he was a little younger and then he would rate things one to 10. So that was fun.
1: That's. Does he do that now?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, he's he's. We haven't gone shopping in a while. I mean, and also he's he's about twelve now, so I don't yeah, think he'd he he get into it. But when he was eight, he actually he's he's much more interested in visuals than I am. So he he had a lot of opinions, but he's also very enthusiastic. So pretty much no matter what I tried on, it was from eight to ten. <laughs> so that's a good person to shop with. Do you ever shop for things that you don't need? I prefer not to. When I'm shopping with Clive, I will sometimes – or sometimes he'll make a case for something. Um, Like there'll be a weird bolero jacket or some weird odd thing that I normally wouldn't wear. I mean I just – you know, I have this theory in my head that everything I'm buying should be this very simple, long-lasting thing that I can use for specific circumstances like – going to dinner in Brooklyn or going into the office, I have bought specific clothes for appearing on panels because that's something that I found that I needed to do. I needed to kind of bring some theater to going onto a panel and interviewing a celebrity or something. So I bought things for that, but I don't shop for just for the the hell of it. Like, and, and trying to... Like, you'll never I walk to, by I, a store and be like, oh, let we'll me go in. Yeah, but when I go in, it's because I saw, like... a a gray A-line skirt in the... I mean, um, it, and actually the few times that that has happened, I always don't buy the thing. I mean, this actually just happened because I was out in LA doing a reporting thing and I was in that fancy area of Venice that um, that has like $4,000 T-shirts. And I went in and I did see, there was like a cool cardigan that was an interesting color and looked good, but it was, when there are pricey cool things that I know I will generally never wear. I always talk myself out of them and just don't buy them.
1: You grew up in Scarsdale. Yes. What were you into style-wise as a kid? Teenager. Oh, How did oh you it dress? was a horror. How? I mean Tell it was me. a
0: nightmare. I was a teenager in the 80s in Scarsdale. This is the worst case scenario. I mean, perhaps this accounts for my disinterested fashion is that I grew up during a period when people were wearing literally the most horrible horrible. I mean, it's interesting to me because now there's this young person nostalgia retro thing about the 80s, and I find it baffling because I literally think every other decade has good clothes. Like the 40s and 50s have good clothes. The 60s has this whole shaggy thing, and also all sorts of other things, green pants on men, all sorts of things. 70s, great. 90s has a lot of good things. Um, The 80s, literally when I was in high school, it was the era of Preppiness, so people wearing, including me, um, like white turtlenecks with whale prints on them, these horrible sweater dresses, which were just they they sort of went right above your knee and they were these big thick, the hideous shoulder pads that, that came, like you get extra shoulder pads and maybe put in two, these terrible silky tops, and Laura Engels Wilder type stuff, like which prairie is back skirts, in a big way now. which are just horrible. And there was, I mean, even when I look back, I was actually just watching an old video a friend from college sent me of people dancing in like a dance show to some 80s song. And the fashion in it is just, I just feel nothing but sympathy. because it, Also, I have to say, it, it was one of those times where um, – the sexy women didn't look sexy because they were wearing these insane shoulder pads. They had their hair Severe hair, se- crazy hair. And then they had the moose claw, which is like the awning on top of the forehead with moose and the hair care products are terrible. I mean most of my teenage experiences had to do with hair, not clothing. But when I, I have I don't think I've ever looked at a pic I mean, I was also not like a cute or stylish teenage girl. Um but to the extent that i ever tried to wear something nice to things like i look back at the photos and i'm like i do not blame myself i blame the clothes <laughs> like the clothes from the period were just bad um so i have i i don't have a lot of nostalgia for the 80s in general i think it was sort of a, a, a ugly political period and i've i've come around more to the art of the period but the fashion ugh. i mean i could name a million terrible things the preppy thing really was bad and was also like boat shoes i don't know
1: Boots. Um, what else socks. were people
0: wearing? Like the sports sack. The sports sack was yeah. huge.
1: Yeah, there was a lot of there was a lot of things about the eighties that I don't think are redeeming at all. I have a lot of nostalgia. Actually, I have a lot of nostalgia for eighties television. Oh, what? Yeah, that's interesting. Which which shows? So I don't know if this is because I recently had a child and I've suddenly become. I'm getting emotional, very aware of like my mortality. And I find the future to be very scary. Well, that is true. And How old is
0: your child? Congratulations. Thank
1: you. Ten months.
0: That's oh, that's amazing. Yeah, he's that's very really small. wonderful.
1: Thank you. And I've been finding this weird comfort in shows that were from my childhood, but I was still a little too young to watch. So for example, the quadriptych or the four the foursome of Dynasty, Dallas, Knots Landing, and Falcon Crest. Right, mm-hmm. so I remember my mom and her friends obsessing over Knots every Thursday. I think they had sweatshirts that said Knots Landing. I remember that show in the very in a very abstract way, mm-hmm. but I never actually sat down and watched it in a serialized way. Those are four shows that I am dying. Just dying. First of all, I think this accounts for the fact that
0: you enjoy shopping more than I do because <laughs> I did not really watch those shows. They were a huge deal, though. That's, well, I'm, I'm
1: somebody that I, I mean, so the other shows I, ref, I will reference, I'm very into, I, I guess, not even on purpose, but I'm very into camp. Anything campy. Sure. I find totally that I personally like that. gravitate toward, like, the Sweet Valley High books and everything about the 80s. Not so much the fashion, but the television. So I found that there's this deep cable network that airs called Antenna,
0: have you heard of this? No, the this sounds network? great. Does it show all those
1: old shows? So, I recently was bored and I hit B on my on my remote, which brings you to the guide on my DVR, my Time Warner guide, and I started typing in these old shows, and I find that they all air on this weird deep cable network called Antenna. So, I've been not those four shows. I wish I cannot find those for anything. But so, I've been recording episodes of uh, Give Me a Break with Nell Carter, Two Two Seven, um. What else? Fam- lots of family ties, growing pains, um, and I just find—I don't know—I love everything. Mister Belvedere, I got really mm. into recently, and they're not particularly good shows. Yeah, but I do find a nostalgia oh, for definitely for actually, that that type of thirty-minute sitcom and laugh track. Nothing, nothing later to me really. I'm not a huge sitcom person, but. I don't know. I just find that and then these these campy dramas from the 80s. I don't know. I
0: take real solace in watching well, them. I, I mean, I have this obsession with soap operas as the source of a lot of the ambition that came out of television in the last 20 years because soap operas were the first serialized storytelling on television because it used to just be a story per episode. And then soap operas were the one track. And it was put down as commercial feminine, it was called soap opera because it sold soap and all of that kind of thing. And those were slow moving moralistic shows that ran during the daytime, but the characters changed and they had cliffhangers. So all of the stuff about serialized storytelling can kind of floated out of soap opera. And then you have these breakthrough soap operas, like um, uh, satirical soap operas, like uh, the show, you know, the show Soap? Of course. Yeah, and um, and uh, Mary Hartman, Mary... No, yeah, yeah, and Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. I have to say, I don't have that much nostalgia for 80s TV in the way that you do, but I'd like to revisit those shows because I do remember it as a sort of a bad period in TV because there was a retreat from the directness and kind of jagged comic styles of the 70s and certainly the political aggression, and there's a more... Um, cozy formulaic. Well, I think that's thing. why I found And I think that's why them. people I don't enjoy good. them. Yeah. But but at the same time I'd sort of like to see them because I at one point I tried to rewatch I remember loving Family Ties, but then when I rewatched it, I found it so preachy. In in a liberal direction, Mm because it's actually, despite having this conservative character, like, every single episode is about how Alex is wrong. Right, and how (laughs) his hippie parents are right. Right, like, and of course, I agree with his hippie parents, but it is really, even the episodes with Tom Hanks in them playing Mm -hmm. his drunk uncle, Mm -hmm. but of course, I mean, I loved watching them, but I was sort of struck by how... I don't know, but I should check out Antenna. That's really interesting. But you've seen Paris is Burning, right? Like the of course. yeah. Oh my god! So the the, the 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 effect on the characters in that of Dallas D and Dinis. It's. I mean, it's, it's so amazing.
1: But I feel, and I too feel like I have a connection to those shows, despite
0: not, I haven't. I haven't watched them. I, I I must have watched them at some point. I do think there's this thing when you're a kid and you are sort of absorb something.
1: I mean, I just. I sometimes will YouTube the credits of Dallas and my heart starts racing. It's so great. It's so do you,
0: do you ever dress like that? Like, is um, that your idea of, like, feminine? Because um, there is this amazing sort of feminine business power thing that they do on those shows. So I don't, not so much
1: Dallas, but Dynasty, not as not as severe as Alexis Carrington, but I'm very into um, thrifting, thrifting. Pieces of clothing with very aggressive shoulders and sleeves, not necessarily shoulder pads. Right. Now, right now in fashion, a puff sleeve is in and it pisses me off because I've been doing a puff sleeve for a long time. And now... They stole it. Well, I wear my things. Everyone's like, oh, you're trendy, you're trendy. And I'm like, I'm not actually not trendy. I was wearing this to work 10 years ago and all the guys in my office would be like, oh, where are you going to a renaissance fair? And now, it's, and now it's very trendy. So I do think that I relate a little bit to this 80s more so characters on television with my style and less about what was popular in stores. Right. But yeah, I sometimes do or I'll see something on a show from the 80s like a pastel knit sweater and a pair of aviators. And I'm like, that's the look. That's the this cross between 70s and 80s. The,
0: the, the thing is, look, all I can say is this is the kind of thing that, that cute young stylish girls can pull off. And because they are a type of clothing that are specifically designed to look uh, like... Like no matter how ugly the clothes, the person like 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 the per, the person's um, style and specificity like makes the clothes look good. You know what I mean? Like totally. there's a, like irony to the clothing because like I think a clunky pa- pastel knit sweater is by nature like I I don't know I do think of it as almost like a, they were object so objectively ugly the sweaters from that period. So it's like a referential thing, and then you pull it together, and then when you m- manage to look cute in it, it's. It's a triumph over the clothing. A thousand percent. Yeah. They're, and it's completely ironic.
1: I can I can wear it with earnestness, but no, it's comp- I know that it's ironic. But I also think that, you know...
0: Whereas cute- I can never see those clothes as ironic because they're literally the clothes that I was wearing to the office when I would do temp jobs in my early teens. Because I just... I mean, not quite those clothes, um, but I just... Like, God, those cable knit sweaters. Is that what you're talking about? Like Absolutely. The, I afford
1: yeah. them. I buy them on Etsy. Cable knit pastel with a slight puff sleeve... Like
0: a little cropped um, cuff, and wear I, them I By the hair, way, I literally—you uh, just gave me a traumatic flashback to a <laughs> specific blouse that I owned. I, that I just saw a is. picture of it. Had it had puffed shoulders? It was red and yellow stripes, and it had those sort of small cuffs that you're talking about. Like, I would love—I feel—I wish I could respond to what you're saying with this kind of like, "Oh, it's wonderful," and like, but I'm telling you, like, I remember the clothes that I wore in the '80s with just. A genuine sense of how uncomfortable, unflattering, and just sort of how they just they just felt bad. Like they like but I think it's I think in the nineties there was this one summer when every woman on earth, it was the weirdest thing. I remember looking out my window in New York and there were like seven women on the street all wearing the same outfit. It was this ridiculous, stupid thing that was just um a black spaghetti strap, cotton. Um, dress that people wore over a white t-shirt. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember this, but there was this, oh, yes. and there was this moment and I was like, in one way, this is not actually like a big fashion move. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't do anything dramatic. It doesn't have cool fabrics. It doesn't have some great, but it is very comfortable and it kind of looks good on everybody in a slightly straightforward way. Um, and I was like, that's actually fine with me. And then I thought like, that's my bad attitude toward fashion is that I'm most drawn to something that's essentially like everyone wearing this boring uniform that's just flattering and comfortable.
1: But now as as I'm listening to you, I'm realizing that I think that some of the affinity that I have for some of these sort of 80s clothes is the same exact reason that I have affinity for the 80s television because these were things that I I didn't grow up with, but I was born I was born around the time that they were popular, but I was still too young to wear them. Right. I was still too young to watch them. So now I'm thinking, what happened in my early childhood that makes me so obsessed with the things also, that I just missed?
0: Also, you were a child. Like, I was a teenager, and I also do have a somewhat outsized dislike for the entire decade. Like, I, I think of it, I, I, one of the reasons that it was so frustrating to have Trump come back into view um, was that he— oversaw all of the 80s in New York. I mean, he was just like this weird floating presence. Him, like, that was the other thing that was going on during that period was those, you know, um, uh, the x-ray Women and the bubble skirts, and this idea of wearing wealth all over you, like the idea of money as part of your clothing, which sort of went with the preppy thing and also went with a lot of these other things. So I just have bad associations with them. I think if I had been a little girl and I'd seen glamorous women going out for the evening and stuff on TV showing them as glamorous power figures, I probably have less of a distaste for that kind (laughs) of clothing. I think that's natural. But because I'm a little bit older, I'm like, I mean, you know, I liked a lot of 70s. Stuff, although I, I think I'm really drawn to 40s clothing. I don't dress like that, but I just the, everybody has that particular kind of um, model of female power or urbane style, and for me, it's always that 40s thing where it's like, um, you know. The it it's kind of a it's a nipped waist. Yeah, nipped waist thing. Yep. And then the dark red lipstick. I mean, that's the one thing that I do wear is I wear I often wear a very dark red lipstick and nice eyebrows and everything. And um and I just like the idea of that sort of we had sassy in the office kind of woman wearing a 40s dress sort of thing. But I don't actually wear those things, but the, the extent that you have this, you're drawn to the the beautiful kind of pastel glitter peacock power woman of those shows I'm, I'm drawn to the I'm trying to think of who specifically from those 40s movies was doing that thing just seemed like a nice look to me that's the nostalgia I have
1: Read something, you know, not necessarily by you, but by a critic in general, and it will be something—a negative review of something that I love. And are we going to have a conversation
0: about Mrs. Mazel? <laughs> no, no, I don't. Okay, no, no, no. that's no. Uh,
1: but no, this is <laughs> okay. taking different. a little bit this of different a different direction. Thing. I'm not, I'm not yeah. hitting on the 40s. Um, I just feel like a lot of times I will love something—a television show, a play, a book, a restaurant—and mm-hmm. then I'll read the review by a critic that I, I respect and I understand that they are meant to be smarter than me, but it will be a bad review. And then I'll feel really shitty. And I'm wondering, like, how much, like, is it your opinion? Isn't your review just your opinion? Of
0: course. That's so, what criticism is. Right. Also, my, my criticism is not a statement that I'm smarter than anybody else. It's just my column. Like, it's like a it's it's me it's a part of a conversation i mean i assume other people disagree or like things like that's baked in but like, what i
1: find so interesting about criticism too is that a review is so final it's never like this show is bad but you might like it it's always like the show is bad and then i'll read it and i'll be like wait Even though I know that I'm smart and I know that my opinion is my own.
0: First of all, if you you access your inner Alexis Carrington, you will not, in fact, but you'll just be like, whatever, this is this person's opinion.
1: Which I I do. But then sometimes when I do read criticism Mm -hmm. of a person I respect, I see all their points. And I'm like, oh, so now they're telling me that the show that I like is bad and I missed all these interesting things about it. And I'm just wondering, do you ever... Do you ever think about that? Do you ever think about, you know, I'm going to I'm going to say this show sucks or this show isn't great, but there's a million people that
0: love it. And do you ever think about that response from people? You know, what what I feel is I feel a multitude of things. One of them is that there's no way in which anything I write is a final statement on a show. It's one of the things I particularly like about television criticism as opposed to other kinds of criticism is that TV strikes me as a medium that is about a big conversation and debate. I mean, it takes place over time. It has this looping effect with the audience where people respond to the show as fans or haters or whatever online. The people making the show are often affected by the conversation. I mean, this is beyond traditional criticism. It's just there's a big uproar because it's a big mass audience and people debating and taking things apart and liking some things and not liking other things. So when I write a column, it's part of that conversation. I come from online in a lot of ways. I mean, I used to write posts uh, in the discussion boards on television without pity. And to me, that's the model of what it is. So when I write a column, it's both supposed to be a final thing in that it's a statement of my feelings, but it's also, I assume, that some people will read it and disagree. Some people, it will sway them. Some people, you know, like, that's that's like any conversation you have. Like, the goal is not to put somebody else's opinion down. But the other thing is, I mean— I feel like all I can do is be honest about my responses to things. Like, the, I've often said this, that I felt uncomfortable writing criticism. I used to write poetry criticism years ago, and I felt like the effect on the poet was too intense because poets... One person makes it, they make no money. And I was reviewing poetry in the New York Times, and it just felt like even writing a mixed review felt very brutal. This isn't about swaying the audience. This is about the artist. And then with, but with TV, I felt like people condescend to TV, and they're always actually overpraising things, just in a sort of, oh, look what TV did, because it used to be considered a junk medium. So I was like writing a pan of a TV show is a way of praising television, because it's actually a way of saying, I expect it to be able to do great things. And so when it falls short that is valuable uh, so yeah i i can't i have to say i feel like i feel like it's not it, like some of the premise of what you're saying just strikes me as as off like i don't think critics are supposed to be smarter than the people reading the thing i don't think that the goal of criticism is to shame somebody for having a different oh, no, opinion not shame. You were, well, well that is sort of what you're saying though right like that, yeah, and well, and so i think that for a critic to think too much about like wh- whether the person reading it is going to feel bad because it disagrees with their opinion would be it would not create very good criticism because then it would be sort of tap dancing and caveating and puffery kind of thing. That said, do I think about the reader? I do. And part of that is because I try to anticipate um, uh, like disagreement to things so that I can incorporate my responses in the thing. But that's not the same as worrying about wounding a, a fan of the show.
1: Do you, do you have anything specifically that comes to mind, a response that you've gotten from, whether it's on Twitter or in your inbox from a reader, who so
0: passionately disagreed with you? Honestly, the only super negative responses I've ever gotten are when I wrote a very strong pan of True Detective back at the height of the hype. And that, that piece I wrote was deliberately aggressive. I wrote it because I was trying to puncture what felt like this big ball of gas around that show that was praising it as like this auteurist masterpiece. I really disagreed. I didn't like the show. Um, So I wrote it in the somewhat gonzo way, but there is a lot of uh, specifically male fans of that show. Yes. Who wrote me really quite violent responses and also like arguing me out of my opinion and stuff like that. That usually doesn't happen. I will say that when I wrote quite a mean piece about Mrs. Maisel, where I will say I waited until the second season because I did not like the first season, but um a lot of female viewers were having so much fun celebrating it that I was kind of like, you know, I don't like the show, but I'm gonna I don't want to piss on people's fun. I'm kind of going to wait until the second season and maybe I'll change my mind. And then I can write this really fun review that talks about me changing my mind. And I watched the second season. I liked it even less. So then I wrote a really negative review. And the the morning that it came out, my friend Lori um, wrote me on Facebook and she was like, are you all right? And I was like, what do you mean? And she was like, oh, I just assumed you were getting a bunch of flack about this Mrs. Maisel review. And I was like, do you literally think there are hordes of women from the Upper West Side (laughs) like storming my place in Brooklyn because they're mad about this review?" I mean. The the, re, the show won a bunch of Emmys. Lots of people like it. Like I'm just one voice in the Concord. But um, so yeah, in general, I mean, I, I actually got tons of positive letters from people who didn't like Mrs. Mazel and felt uncomfortable about saying that.
1: I tend to usually agree with your opinions.
0: Well, I mean, you don't have to. Like they're like, like I know. Sometimes I don't have people to. write to me on Twitter and they're like, oh, I like the show that you didn't like, or I, I don't like the show that you liked, and now this is upsetting me because, I, and I'm like, we're not. Like twins, <laughs> like it's good. It's good for people to disagree. Like then it becomes a like a more fun discussion, you know? I don't know. Like I I, I don't, I, I I like reading things that I disagree with because then they challenge my thinking on it, you know, like they sort of stress test my ideas. But some things are just opinions. I mean, I sometimes have emotional responses to things that other people don't. Like, I wouldn't expect everybody to. Um, Have you ever wanted to revise an opinion that you put out publicly? Well, I once wrote a piece about having changed my mind about this TV show, The Nick. But I have to say, in retrospect, although I did change my mind about it, the way I changed my mind was so um, specific. I I basically understood the show as being an anti-hero show in a cliched way that it wasn't but I didn't really change my mind about the whole show. So I actually think I was trying to do this thing that I thought would be an interesting move to, because it's like hard, because your your opinion about shows often changes, you know, they go on for years. Um, but I don't really regret any specific thing that I've written. The only thing I will say is I once wrote a piece about Mad Men that I absolutely think the column holds up. I think it's a good, I mean, I loved Mad Men, but it was, the thing about the piece was that it was a criticism of the way the show was being dragged down by how, kind of ponderously symbolic Don Draper was. <laughs> like, all the other characters were, like, real people, but he was, like, symbolizing masculinity and America and capitalism and advertising and, like, and, and he had this crazy kind of gothic backstory. And so I wrote this piece basically saying this show, it can be so fleet and, and dreamlike and beautiful and psychologically rich, but his character is like the island on Lost where it's this big symbol that's weighing the show down. That's a good argument. Is a good piece, but then literally three weeks later, I think they had the episode where it was either the one where the guy gets run over by the the um, uh, lawnmower, the uh, John Deere, yeah, lawnmower. or or it was the one where Ken suddenly starts tap dancing or something. In yes, room. like so. Anyway, I remember watching it. And I was just like, <laughs> you know, something. I was too hard on the show. Like it wasn't a negative review, but I was just like. This show is so crazy. It's like, crazy. I just didn't give it enough credit for its craziness. But it's not like the original review is bad or wrong. It's more like, three episodes later, I had a different response. That's that's the difficult thing about responding to something kind of being made before your eyes. I always thought the charm of Mad Men, I, I love
1: theater, and every single episode to me, sort of, I I felt like I was watching... A play and how there'd be like tinkling music between each scene. It was like a scene change.
0: I mean, it was. I mean, that's a really wonderful show that I do think holds up. I'm kind of glad that it's over because then people can experience it as this done deal. But those were some good clothes. (laughs) Those
1: those were some. I'm not even. I'm not a A mid century. A a terribly big fan of anything mid century and. I did find myself really captivated by the clothing on that show. I mean, men and women.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was definitely stuff in that show. By the way, the whole time since we were talking about the 80s, I realized like my brain is just flooded with other bad clothes of the 80s. I could have done this entire podcast about my hostility toward enormous what belts. Else? I'd like to hear enormous a few more. belts. Enormous belts, I'm with you. They, they just kept telling with everybody you. that if you wore an enormous belt, that that made your body look good. Like it was crazy. Like, no, and you were supposed to wear the enormous asymmetrical leather belt over a sweater dress. Mm-hmm. Look crazy. The other thing is that um, the bathing suits that had the the scoop um, uh, uh, over your hip that went super high and it was supposed to lengthen your legs. Oh, like the high cut, yeah, yeah, the, yeah, high, the cut. high cut bathing suits. They were so burdensome and terrible. And, and they're then, so hot
1: right now amongst like the sort they? of Insta celeb set. Oh, you see the Hadids and the yeah. Kendall. Kardashians, There's
0: like, I occasionally become aware of what's going on in fashion. Like, I, like, just because I, I went, again, I went to L. A. and I was hanging out in Venice, and I was like, "What is this thing where everybody's wearing these insane bolero hats?" <laughs> <laughs> There's like people just walking around wearing these huge, huge hats. Um, so that's the kind of thing that is actually a benefit of getting older. Is I am under no illusion that I could get away with that. I just want to pull off some other kind of older woman eccentricity. So I'm just examining the older stylish women of New York, trying to pick out some scheme that I can use. Because since the, I've spent my life being like faintly schlubby with a few good accessories, I feel like now is my chance as as an elderly woman. Like, I'm not quite elderly yet. I, I, like, I wouldn't classify yeah. you as elderly. In, like, I'm just, I'm, just, I'm <laughs> planning for a decade in. I'm just trying to figure out what, you know, eccentric, it's stylish, some but of the comfortable women, look.
1: Some of the women that we've had on this podcast, I'll ask them, you know, when you close your eyes and envision yourself in, you know, 30, 40, 50 years, how do you see yourself looking and how do you see yourself dressing? And every answer is pretty similar in that, you know, there's been, you know, a Felicia Rashad mentioned tossed around here and there, but everything is sort of this, like, stately but relaxed you know there's a there's a there's a palazzo pant and yeah. there's a matching you know maybe something monochromatic but I do think a fascination with older woman fashion well, I, is very I think very there's a problem
0: because a lot of the best looking older woman looks are double as like a Reiki therapist look which is not really something I'm going for like nope. a like a, stra- like a Reiki therapist with like a mysterious source of independent wealth so that it's like you know a long tunic yeah tunic I don't really want to wear a tunic
1: no No, I don't, no. I'll
0: probably come up with something else. I mean, the truth is, my main thing is not about clothes, it's about hair. I've spent my whole life with this crazy curly hair. That was a bad thing in the 80s. I spent all this time putting my hair in, like, orange juice cans. So the clothes were just nothing compared to the hair problems.
1: you've written about and you've talked about Sex in the City. And I know that you've said it's a show that you can talk a lot about. And that is one television show, for better or worse, that I find myself talking to people about. And I do not get sick of it, of yeah, talking I about agree. it. I don't love everything. I love the show. I do. Mm-hmm. I adore it. I think it's wonderful. I don't love everything about the show, but I find myself falling into these conversations with colleagues, especially, who feel are very intelligent about the show, but feel very passionately. And I just want to talk about it for like I five minutes. I ca- no, Our I'm last really five minutes. happy,
0: always happy. To, I just want to I talk mean, about it. I mean, really it really is in this category of show. And I agree with you. It's it's like this, it's this beautiful shimmering text that is the shared thing, especially among women, that has all sorts of rich and specific things to say about very universal kinds of subjects about power and sex and friendships and all of this kind of stuff. And yet it's completely pleasurable and funny and stylized. And And one thing I think is the beginning of a whole bunch of shows that I love. Me
1: too. And one thing I find so interesting about that show is when I watched it, when it aired in real time, I don't think I had the intelligence to understand that the character of Carrie Bradshaw is by and large designed to be loved. And now when I watch them on demand and I really dig into them, I realize that she actually was written as sort of a not great person all the time and she brings her friend bagels and doesn't bring the cream cheese and she whines and there's just all these things. And I find that so smart that it's so the refreshing. first time around, though, you I, I didn't pick up on that. I was like, they're telling me that this is this glittery character and I love her and now I watch it, and I'm like, I love that she's not a wonderful so, friend. So
0: that's interesting. When you first watched it, you perceived her as a role model and a positive a character.
1: thousand percent. See, this, and And were you watching it as a teenager? I was watching it as a... 18 to, what, around six seasons? 18 to 20, whatever, six years plus 18. So is
0: one thing there. that I always say about Sex and the City, aside from the fact that I, I really do admire the show and find it wonderful, is that I'm in the exact same age as Carrie Bradshaw. So she went from 32 to 38 on the show I watched it starting when I was 32 until I was 38. And my growing awareness that women had watched it when they were teenagers or when they were in their early 20s and that they saw it through different eyes and perceived the ideas of it in different ways. Like a lot of teenage girls watched it kind of as a blueprint. Like this is how women live their lives, which seemed yes. absolutely baffling to me. Well, that I didn't. I grew up in New York right. City. No, and I, I didn't I, think that,
1: so. I, that That I never felt like aspirational, but I did look at the characters and yeah, I thought because
0: they were designed to be liked and I bought it. I liked them. That's it's so funny because at the time the show was out, they got nothing but criticism in the press. I, like people were constantly and women were frequently saying like I like that show, but Carrie is just so self-centered and stuff like that. It's interesting that you when you were watching it, you you perceived saying to somebody you're such a Carrie as like a completely positive thing. I like, didn't realize yeah. that
1: that 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 she was self-centered. I didn't really realize it until I think the first time I was 33 and I was watching the show again. And I don't, I don't remember what it was, and I remember watching. It was watching, like which episode? Well, okay. I mean, I was watching a bunch of them in succession, but I, it was the episode where she brings bagels and doesn't bring the cream cheese. It's the episode.
0: No, we could talk endlessly about Carrie Bradshaw. I, well, I, the I the do have a love where her she storms feel, out
1: of Bungalow Eight because her friend wasn't paying any attention to her. That which, is which which friend? Uh, the the gay guy that she meets at the oh, gay club, the oh, shoe right. salesman, and he literally turned his back for five minutes to talk to another person. And she threw a fit and walked out. I cannot get over that episode.
0: I'm trying to remember it because wasn't it a situation where he had sort of brought her to the club mm-hmm. and she was like Aiden wanted her to stay home yep. with him.
1: All that glitters is the name of the episode.
0: See, I, I was actually sympathetic with Carrie because she sort of realized that that guy was, but it was using one her as. But he ch-
1: yes. But in my opinion, when I watched that episode, she he he speaks to somebody else. It wasn't all night. We didn't have their whole entire evening. It was once or twice. He said, hello, to somebody. And she's like, um, um, and then she storms out. And I'm like, who, what adult (laughs) behaves this way?
0: Yeah. Plenty, probably. But. That is really interesting to me that you had perceived Carrie as a straightforwardly, you know, more positive character. I did. Um, but now but, I do but I, but I despite seeing her as incredibly flawed and sort of creating anxiety in a lot of female viewers, which is something I wrote about. I I, I do I do love her character. And it's because I her vulnerabilities her feel so real, including character. becoming obsessive about the guy she's dating to the point of being pathetic. Like which upsets I think a lot of people watching it. But I'm like, I don't know. I feel like she opened the door to a lot of amazing female characters on TV. Um, My last question for you mm-hmm. as we wrap up. Do you think that my
1: parents were
0: bad parents for letting me
1: watch Twin Peaks when it came out? Of
0: course not. They were excellent parents. That's amazing. Why wouldn't they?
1: People all the time now, when I say that I started watching it at 10 and I was scared beyond belief, I remember I watched the pilot and I was a little afraid. I had And I was not a very sensitive kid. I remember I had trouble falling asleep that night because I was spooked and I was so addicted from that sort of spook that I would watch every episode. And my parents were like, sure. And my sister, who's four years younger, would watch it with me. And now people are like, your parents
0: let you watch that? No, that's... That seems so, weird to me. Although I, I will say all the movie critics that I know show their kids very adult movies when they're very young. I have not showed my kids stuff, but my kids get scared of stuff. That's just specific to them. But everybody finds something. I, I saw, um, I mean, it's sort of a kid's movie, but uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, I was so freaked out by the scene with the blue gum mm-hmm. that I ate, a, uh, I ate like a gumball at the supermarket and literally had like a panic attack when I was seven <laughs> or eight oh because I thought I was going to turn into a blueberry. So I don't think that it's, I don't know. It seems like that's a pretty good show. It's not like they were showing you it's a fantastic. I don't know. Show. Like I'm trying to think it like it was it wasn't like they were showing you like some they took you out to a porn theater or something. Thank you so much Emily. Thank you for having me. It was really fun
1: what I wear when is a production of Glamour and iHeartRadio with new episodes dropping every Monday. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm your host, Glamour Digital Director, Perry Samitton. Follow me on Instagram at Perry Samitan. P-E-R-R-I-E-S-A-M-O-T-I-N. Our executive producer is Ali Perry, and our producers are glamour's Kim Fassaro and iHeart's JJ Posway. What I Wore When is engineered by Emily Marinoff and Derek Clements. Special thanks to Julie Shen and Deanna Buckman at Conde Nast. For more information on today's episode, go to glamour.com slash what I wore when.